Hello, this is Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast. I hope you had the kind of an Easter that was a blessing to your spirit and your mind. Well, this is episode number 22 in the series titled, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. It's based on my latest book, published this last fall by the same title. That book is available on Amazon.com if you're interested and you haven't already picked up a copy. It's available in Kindle, paperback, and hardback. The topic today concerns the status of the early ecclesia, when the Gentiles began becoming a part of the mix. But I want to start off by telling you a short fictional-based story that's based on historical fact. Here we go. Tobias listened closely to his master, Gaius. It was during the evening meal. Gaius was the first in this whole region of Greece to believe that the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the Son of God, had come, and that he'd come not only to lead the Jews, but to provide a way to eternal life for anyone who believed in him. Gaius had been in Jerusalem during Shavuot three years earlier when he witnessed a miracle. Close followers of the Jewish Messiah were speaking to people in their native languages, Greek, Egyptian, Akkadian, Latin, and many others. They claimed that they had never been taught these languages and that only weeks earlier their master Jesus had risen from the dead three days after being crucified by Roman soldiers. And they claimed that the Tanakh the Jewish Bible, had predicted how this will happen. Because of the illumination of the Holy Spirit within himself that day, Gaius believed the case they made along with about 3,000 others who were in Jerusalem for the holiday. He, along with the rest, were baptized by the disciples that day when they heard the apostles' message. It was James who baptized Gaius in the pool of Siloam. Gaius remained in Jerusalem and listened to the disciples of Jesus teach for about two months after Pentecost, before finally returning home to Megara, which lay to the west of Athens on the Isthmus of Corinth. His time in Jerusalem had been a unique encounter with God, and a family-like community experience he will never forget. He was never intending to stay there so long. He only had enough money to stay in Jerusalem for a few days and for the return trip home. He was not the only one to find himself in that situation. Those that remained in Jerusalem with the apostles had expected that Jesus would return any day, and they wanted to be there to witness the event. After a few days, some of the believers who lived in and around Judea started selling off pieces of their land to provide for those who had unexpectedly remained in Jerusalem. But before long, even those resources began to dwindle. Out of necessity, the visitors started to leave and return to their homes and work. Those who lived far away were sent with enough provisions to make it home, so most said their goodbyes to their friends in Jerusalem. Gaius was a coppersmith. He sold his goods out of the bottom floor of his home. Customers were in and out of his shop throughout the day as his wife went about family business on the next floor up. Gaius met other Hellenistic Jews and Gentiles continually while doing their business. There was no great persecution of Christians in this region yet. The story that Gaius told of his experience three years earlier in Jerusalem was no secret to anyone. However, it met with mixed reactions, curiosity being one of them. Tobias, Gaius's apprentice, had been one of the curious. 
When he finally came to believe in Jesus, Gaius baptized him in the nearby sea. Gaius had also baptized his sister, Calliope. He had not seen her in almost two years. She lived in a small village about 50 miles to the north. Before Gaius left her, she'd come to believe what Gaius said about Jesus. Her husband had not. The idea angered him, and he forbade Calliope to talk to anyone about her faith. As far as Gaius knew, his sister was still the only believer in Jesus in or around her village. Another family was sharing the meal with Gaius's family that day. Alexander was a well-to-do government official. His slave boy had told him of Gaius's story, and he became irresistibly intrigued by it. He paid Gaius's shop a visit and, as a result, invited him and his family to his home to share a meal. Because of this divine appointment, Alexander and his household had also come to believe in Jesus very soon after Gaius returned to Megara. The relationship between Alexander and Gaius's families had grown very close. Aletheia, a slave woman who fancied Tobias and made every excuse to frequent the coppersmith's shop, had also come to believe in Jesus through Gaius's story. Unfortunately, because of her obligations as a slave, she could not be present at this dinner. She'd been able to only make it a couple of times in the past. Her master was not sympathetic to her desires to eat with other families. She looked forward to her brief encounters with Tobias and Gaius at the shop. Claudia, Gaius's wife, also made it a point to meet with Aletheia the few times that it had been possible. There was no planned format for meeting, as this small group, made up of Jews, Gentiles, rich and poor, slave and free men and women, shared the traditional Greek meal. They reclined at the table and discussed what they knew about Jesus, which is only what Gaius had learned from the apostles and had passed on to them. They talked about what they knew of the Tanakh and how it seemed to line up with what they knew about Jesus. Before they left, they tentatively decided where and when they would meet next. Well, the last time they met, it was Alexander's home two weeks prior. The group prayed together and asked for God's Holy Spirit to illuminate them and lead them into truth. No one person was in charge. It was the Holy Spirit, after all, that Jesus had promised will lead his ecclesia, not mortal humans. Generally, whoever was the head of the house that they were meeting in provided any necessary leadership. They had nothing in writing. There was a copy of the Tanakh at the local synagogue, and although he could read because of Gaius's belief in Jesus as the Son of God and Messiah, he was no longer welcome there. The apostles of Jesus had not sent anyone present for the day of Pentecost, like Gaius, home with the burden of being an apostle themselves. No one, including Gaius, felt as though it was their job to spread the gospel. They had no reason to think that their mission was to start work on building God's kingdom on earth. Because that was never their mission. As they went about their normal business, they left that work to the Holy Spirit. As they were used by the Spirit, occasionally they participated in spreading the gospel through their natural desire to tell others what they had found. The simplicity of the knowledge of the good news was all they needed as the second generation of disciples of Jesus. Gaius, being a devout Hellenistic Jew, celebrated the Passover once a year, but because of the distance, he rarely could make it to Jerusalem. However, Passover for Gaius had a different meaning than it did when he was a child. 
per the instruction of the disciples, the wine that he and the others shared during the Passover meal now represented the blood of Jesus and the unleavened bread that they broke, his body. The Passover Seder was all new to Alexander and his family, who, until a couple years earlier, had mainly worshipped Apollo, the patron god of Megara. It was another 15 years before this group learned of the Apostle Paul recently visiting Athens. And until then, this group of called-out ones, the Ecclesia at Megara, were on their own, totally dependent on the leadership of God's Holy Spirit and Gaius's memories of what he'd learned and been taught by the apostles years earlier. As they all continued to go about their normal business, they met when they could. Tobias eventually earned Aletheia's freedom and married her. All the believers interacted as a loving family. They encouraged each other, reminded each other of their beliefs, took care of each other when sick and in need, and looked forward to and waited on their Lord for his return. Well, this fiction that I just read you is an example of what it may have been like to be a part of the first century ecclesia, a chosen one of God, redeemed for eternal salvation because of Jesus, at a time before there was a New Testament or traveling apostles to guide anyone. It was the most untainted, organic time in which people outside of Israel reacted to the gospel while engaging in their normal lives. There's never going to be a time like it again, short of the return of Jesus. Now, this is really an important uh, point to get here. Hear me here. The church has not evolved into something better than what existed during this early period. In the absence of all we know today as church and all that church involves, every called out one of this early time was equipped with everything they needed to completely accomplish their master's plan for their lives. Of course, there were problems during this period. There always will be wherever humans are involved. But what seems like an ideal situation that many today seek did not last long. Unfortunately, the gospel does not operate in a vacuum. What we do with it is subject to our deeply rooted worldview our culture, education, personal history, religious beliefs, superstitions, and our selfish sin nature. Numbers of people claiming to follow Jesus were gradually on the increase. You know, there were bursts of these quick gains that are uh, enumerated in the New Testament, but overall it was a gradual increase in numbers of Christians. Where there are more sinners, there's more synergistic sin potential. (laughs) The writings of the apostles came in reaction to misunderstanding the simple gospel as it was added to and increased in complexity. Problems developed in what was becoming a religious institution, the church. What had started as an organic response to the gospel as informal and occasional, occasional gatherings of the elect out of a desire to get together and support one another and learn about Jesus, was gradually becoming inorganically organized. The gatherings had started to take on the characteristics of the cultures that they were found in, including the culture's pre-existing pagan religious practices. Additionally, like ghosts from the past, 
Those who would have them return to the traditional religious practices of the Jews were influencing the ecclesia. Now, to be clear, Christianity was trans- transitioning from the state of becoming aware of God's truth and reacting, and reacting organically to it into becoming a new, unique, inorganic religion. People were not new to the world of religion and worship. They brought their old beliefs and habits with them, and they didn't think the, the ones that they didn't think conflicted with their new faith in Jesus. They, like the Jews, had been praying and making sacrifices to the gods throughout history. In Corinth, worshipers had been ecstatically speaking in unknown languages long before they had heard about what happened at Pentecost. There were exceptions, of course, like those who worshipped Bacchus. But contrary to what you may have heard about extreme, grotesque debauchery regularly taking place amongst the Greeks and the Romans, the average Hellenist was a follower of the moral teachings of the Sophists, the Stoics, and the Epicurean philosophers of their day. They did, after all, idolize vestal virgins in the temple and didn't practice vestal prostitution. Yet, across the Roman world, people engaged in certain immoral practices when attending what they called love feasts. And although many things may have been permissible, no longer was everything appropriate or profitable for those who wanted to follow Jesus. What should stay and what should go became the issue. Conflict was unavoidable as people moved beyond the simplicity of the good news. The Christian belief system became increasingly complex and numbers of believers grew. What were they to think about what they had previously been taught about morality? Could they still trust the Stoic philosophers? Sorting sorting out what was compatible with being a Christian was not easy especially where many people, some called-out followers of Jesus and others who were posers, tried to decide this corporately. It's at this exceedingly early point, only decades after Jesus ascended to heaven, that believers left the world of only following the simple gospel message behind in favor of an increasingly complex religion. It's an age-old way of doing things. Listen to this from Genesis 11:4. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. After Noah's flood, the earth had become complex and sinful. God judged the earth by destroying all but a few in the worldwide deluge, you know, Noah's flood. Afterwards, he again made the way to salvation simple and clear. To paraphrase, God told Noah to be fruitful and multiply, not to eat meat with blood still in it, and not to kill people. (laughs) If Noah and his descendants did those things, they would be in good standing with God. However, few generations had passed after Noah's flood when people thought it was a good idea to make their own way to heaven. They started building a city and a tower to attempt to do so. Well, that offended God, and he again acted. He caused the people to speak in different languages so they, could, so they couldn't understand each other, and so they stopped their work, and they dispersed. Like the people of the earth, who after the flood used their reasoning to decide it was a good idea to build a tower extending to the heavens, you know, in the name of religion, 
Early Christians left the simplicity of the stark naked gospel behind and started building their own sort of tower to the heavens based on their reasoning. It's not the Tower of Babel that they started to build, but the church. Jesus had not left anyone with a blueprint for building a church, simply because building an earthly institutional church was not what he came to do. He did, however, come to build a kingdom and fill that kingdom with eternal subjects. But the kingdom he was building is not yet of this world. As of today, the kingdom of Jesus remains in heaven. There it will stay separate from this world until Jesus brings it with him at his return. One of the primary things that Christians did when they gathered in the name of Jesus was to reflect on his life and teachings. Conveying the story of Jesus orally was the only way it was communicated for at least 17 years. Likely longer, depending on the location, of course. The early believers were subject to the accuracy and editorializing of the storyteller of the gospel. The gospels were finally written down as the original witnesses of Jesus' life started to age and disperse and then eventually die. Originally, there was no perceived need to write it down. That's why the delay. The followers of Jesus thought he would be back at any moment during their lifetime. Well, as time went on and inconsistencies in the stories of Jesus spread, it was apparent a written record needed to be uh, written down. It's my opinion that the Apostle John's Gospel may have been written specifically because of the command that Jesus gave to John as recorded in the book of Revelation, chapter 1. It said, Write the things that you had seen. Whereas the book of Revelation is a book containing the things that will take place, the Gospel of John contained the things that John had personally seen. Both the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation were written around the same time, towards the end of the first century. It's as though the book of John was written as from the perspective of one who walked with Jesus to make sure the record was set straight after so many rumors and false doctrines had been spread. His gospel addresses specific issues. It's the result of around 60 years of oral tradition gone wrong. Much of the Gospel of John may have been previously written down by John's followers, along with John's commentary and explanation about the things that he was writing about. The preamble, for example, found in John 1, chapter, let's see, uh, John 1... 1 to 13, which is not a part of the narrative of the life of Jesus, seems to address the issue of early Gnosticism, specifically a part of that called docetism, which had become a popular false teaching that had crept into the church by the end of the first century. Oral traditions brings with it inaccuracies as it's handed down. Memories fade. Which version of the many stories in circulation should one trust? Forgery was not limited to the written word. Stories were easily made up and vocalized. Therefore, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the Gospels were recorded prior to the time that the witnesses to the life of Jesus had passed away. But the written word was hardly the be-all and end-all solution for fighting heresy. There were many documents written that made false claims about Jesus in the first few centuries after he walked the earth. Routinization 
right? Or routinization, I'd call it routinization, is a sociological phenomenon that takes place when what is an isolated event becomes the basis of a custom, and then it's institutionalized. Within religion, those things are absorbed as acts of faith and are confused with serving God and being pleasing to Him. As time goes on and these acts of faith become routine, when we fail to do them, we feel guilty, as though something is missing and doesn't seem quite right. I remember my parents discussing various church services that we'd attended as a family over the years. They pointed out things that were missing, according to the church culture that they grew up in, like there was no, quote, special music, unquote, or no organ or scripture reading or offering taken. (laughs) Most noticeable was when there was no sermon which convicted them and made them feel like a sinner. They said something like, well, that just wasn't church. Yet, Jesus and his apostles did not establish anything resembling regular religious practices. The annual partaking of the Passover Seder, considering its new fulfilled meaning, and baptism are, you know, the possible exceptions to that. What we find today in church is the result of routines being added on top of routines. It's how he went from Jesus sharing his simple Passover meal with his disciples to the complex mass where a swinging ball of incense is but one of the many props and components. And routinization is why we feel like we've failed to meet our obligation of serving God. If we call in sick for serving as the barista at the church coffee bar before the Sunday morning service. Excluding the unique beliefs about who Jesus was, most of what occurred during this early period of church history regarding coming together was not unique to the church. There was a widespread movement towards formal associations of people with common interests in both the secular world and the religious about this time. Synagogues, philosophical schools, mystery cults, burial societies, trade guilds, and fraternities were increasingly popular during this time. Some organizational components of the various secular societies were recycled and reused within the church. For example, since voluntary and cult associations met monthly, larger pre-planned gatherings of Christians may have followed their lead. Most people, whether they were Jews or Gentiles, carried forward the practices that they were accustomed to into Christianity. In fact, one thing that helped the early ecclesia survive was that those on the outside, their meetings resembled secular meetings. During times of persecution, Christian meetings just blended in with all the other meetings that were taking place in the neighborhood. By the end of the first century, over the f- or very soon after that, the last apostle personally authorized by Jesus to speak on his behalf, which was the apostle John, passed away. The letters of Paul, John, Peter, James, and the others found in the New Testament are their inspired, expanded explanations of the gospel. And they're the recommendations of how to apply the teachings of Jesus, taking into consideration the challenges the early Christians faced, such as how everyone can get along as numbers of people started to increase and resisting the ways of the old religious guard and the problems associated with the influences of 
Judaism and pagan cultures that believers were all a part of. No one has become more influential on what takes place in church gatherings than the Apostle Paul. However, no one's writings have been more misunderstood and misused regarding the church than the Apostle Paul's either. What Paul wrote regarding what takes place when believers get together and church governance is mostly viewed as New Testament law, when what Paul was actually doing was applying the principles of the gospel to real-world situations during that time and place in history. So what principles did Paul utilize when he offered his recommended solutions? Well, no surprise, faith, hope, and love. Specific problems in different societies and cultures will drastically change over time. Specific answers on how to address those problems will also change. But what will not change are the principles Paul used to arrive at the solutions for problems wherever and whenever they arise. Paul didn't pretend to foresee the problems that would arise over the next 2,000 years when believers in Jesus gathered together. As he wrote his letters to the called-out ones, he did not attempt to provide answers for what he did not know about. He also didn't attempt to provide a perpetual system of human governance among the ecclesia that provided answers to the problems that would arise. He relied on the enduring principles that he and the others taught, and he relied on Jesus being the head of the ecclesia who continually works through his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brought to Paul's mind the things that Jesus had said and instructed Paul in how to apply to the principles Jesus taught to the real-world situations that he became aware of. As the COVID-19 virus literally plagued the world and still plagues some of the world today, the economy is tanking and world war looms outside the door. You know, it's nutty in Ukraine. Even more nutty is what's taking place in Israel today. If you watch the Israel news every day, they're talking about the impending war with Iran. Well, that's just going to be a little messy. Well, in light of these things, I wonder what the Apostle Paul would write to us today. How would he apply the biblical principles of faith, hope, and love to our current situation? What is it that the Holy Spirit would say that we need to address today? The sending of the Parakletos, the Holy Spirit, looked far beyond the days that the apostles walked the earth. Understanding that Paul's guidance should be looked at as specific recommendations for those who were alive at a special time and place is a tough adjustment for some who are looking for black and white direction in their lives or how to run a church, especially for those who do not experience the intrinsic guidance of the Holy Spirit, those who are non-elect, you know, the unsaved, who are Christians in name only, they need rules spelled out. They desire rituals, routines, a how-to manual and formulas to cling to, to make them feel okay. Seeking these hardcore black and white answers and rituals and routines is a very human and worldly way that uh, we seek such comfort. If we fail to understand what Paul wrote were guidelines for first century Christians with specifically Greek and Roman culturally-based specific problems 
who are mostly living in urban areas, then we risk greatly misunderstanding our obligations today. We first need to approach the letters of the apostles by reading them like they're somebody else's mail. Personalizing the letters and applying them to our time and our lives and situation takes discernment. But this is where the called out are blessed. Discernment is one of the Holy Spirit's specialties. As an example, Paul gave direction regarding hair length to both men and women in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. Women's hair is to be long, but it's a disgrace if a man's hair is long. Well, through the study of the culture of Paul was a part of, I understand what Paul means in this passage, but honestly, he engages in a diatribe about hair length and covering the, the head during prayer that I just can't relate to in the 21st century. Paul makes his case by making this following statement. Here's what it says. Judge for yourselves. Is it appropriate for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And doesn't even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's shameful? Well, my answer to Paul, based on where I live in time and space, is yes and no. Yes, Paul, contrary to what you were saying about your first century culture, it seems completely fine for a woman to pray with short hair. <laughs> and no, Paul, I don't see anywhere in nature where it's teaching me that long hair on a man is shameful. In fact, Jesus probably had long hair. Perhaps today, in some cultures, some still might relate to what Paul wrote. I absolutely cannot. <laughs> but I'm just thrilled that anyone is praying. <laughs> to confirm this is a cultural issue, Paul ends his hairdo diatribe by stating, to paraphrase, but if anyone has a problem with what I'm saying about this, we don't have any prescribed hair customs amongst the ecclesia. Well, though what Paul had written about hair doesn't seem to be relevant today, what he wrote to the first century ecclesia in Corinth was based on principles found in the gospel. An uncovered head of a praying short-haired woman was an unloving sign of disrespect in Paul's day. He was asking people to act in accord with the principles of showing love to one another. The principle is the same today, where the application of what he was talking about is not. If Paul were around today, he would likely never write, quote, greet one another with a holy kiss, unquote. He did so four different times in his letters. The holy kiss was a practice that stuck for centuries. You know, now, perhaps Paul would write, greet one another with a holy el elbow bump because of the times that we live in. Or if online, he might write a holy heart emoji, you know, like with a hand and a cross and a heart. <laughs> there are, of course, many things that transcend time and culture. Both Paul and Peter's instructions for women to dress modestly not only communicated that women should not dress in a sexually provocative manner, but not to dress like in a lavish way. The reasons to avoid sexual provocation are obvious. Men have just as strong of sexual urges today as they have ever had. But dressing modestly was also a way to break down socioeconomic barriers between rich and poor, slave and free, Jew and Gentile in the ecclesia. 
again, dressing modestly or not in a way that was lavish and show-offy was according to the principle of love then and now. These things are all still true today. Just because a 21st century man is supposed to think of women as some kind of an androgynous being who has the right to dress how they choose, well, the fact is that we are all living under a divine command to be fruitful and multiply. (laughs) It's an unloving thing for women to do to intentionally dress in a manner that tempts her brothers in the Lord. Similarly, dressing to the nines might be okay when either sex is attending the social event of the year where you can expect everyone else to be dressed up, but flaunting one's wealth with one's expensive clothing around others who are not as blessed as you is not a loving thing to do. I'm making the point that Paul wrote based on following the principles of the gospel rather than specifically legislating the church for two reasons— time, and place. First, I encourage you to examine each thing that he wrote about something, you know, every time that he wrote about something specific with an eye out for if it might apply to our situation today or whether it was simply an application of a principle during Paul's time. Is it a mandate for the ecclesia of all time Or was it the application of an enduring biblical principle specifically intended for the first century ecclesia in Corinth? Then, looking at the forest instead of only the individual trees, we can ask ourselves how those principles that Paul utilized might apply to our specific situations in our day. What is it that love within the ecclesia dictates to us today? Secondly, we should understand that Paul's recommendations to individual cells of the called out were not intended to be universally mandated practices for everyone in the ecclesias that were in existence even in Paul's day. We shouldn't assume that all churches in the first century, even the ones Paul wrote to, acted uniformly or had developed the same problems or needs you know, the, the early ecclesia spanned from the Middle East to Europe. Cultures were drastically different. So what was a problem in Corinth might not have been a problem in Rome or in Jerusalem or in uh, any of the North African countries that the gospel had spread to. The Romans might have even been confused <laughs> by what Paul meant by speaking in tongues a practice that may have been going on amongst the pagan cults in Corinth prior to Christianity taking hold. Paul must have heard it was an issue in Corinth, so he addressed it. Well, he didn't address that issue with the Romans. Maybe they didn't have problems with respecting elders in Corinth, like they may have had in Thessalonica. Why bring it up with the Corinthians if it wasn't a problem? Paul was not authoring a book of rules and regulations for the ecclesia. He was writing letters to believers who'd gotten a little off track in several ways. He was providing them with guidance. Certainly, his guidance still applies to us today, if our circumstances are the same, because it was based on the precepts of the gospel which transcends space, time, and culture. I'm going to leave it there for this episode. There's a lot left to talk about on this topic. Next time, we're going to pick it up with the nitty-gritty of... (laughs) 
<laughs> church leadership. Until then, may God bless you. Shalom and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Thank you.